Amen. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Son and the Holy Spirit. All right, if you're getting confirmed on Sunday, it's a big moment. Um, so if you were baptized Catholic, right, and but never got confirmed, Sunday's your day, the noon Mass. And so if you could come a little early to that Mass, we'll walk through. If you come at like 1130, we'll do a walkthrough of how that's all going to work. The big things, we, if you have not gotten them to Stephanie yet, we, we really need your confirmation saint's name um, and your sponsor, if they're able to be there. We really want them to be there. Um, we need to make name tags. You might we have them. We have them. Don't you love people who are organized? <laughs> um, so we'll need that. What's going to happen when you get confirmed? Uh, there'll be a, we'll call you guys up by name. Um, after the homily, there's going to be a prayer calling the Holy Spirit down upon you. Um, and then you're going to come, it's going to be like a reverse communion line. So usually you go up towards the altar, you're going to come, I'm going to be below you, you're going to come down from the altar. Your confirmation sponsor is going to have their hand on your shoulder. Um, and if I can't see your name tag, I'll ask them for your uh, saint name. And then I'll say your saint name, I'm going to take holy oil, I'm going to put it on your forehead. And I'll say, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you remember when we talked about confirmation, we talked about the spiritual seal that's all over Scripture, where God marks you as belonging to him. Um, and so I'll say, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you will say, amen, but you probably won't because you'll be nervous and you'll forget. Because that's what everybody does. And then I'll say, peace be with you. And I'll reach out my hand and you will just stare at me because that's what everybody does, because they get nervous. But what you should do is shake my hand and say, and with your spirit. And we'll go through all of that as we um, walk through it on Sunday. So 11.30 is Sunday in the church. We'll do a quick rehearsal ahead of time. And everyone has gotten their stuff in the meeting except for one person, and you know who you are, so don't say and Stephanie, if you haven't gotten your stuff to her, she is judging you in her heart. Yeah, I, I will be waiting to see you in the confession line. <laughs> so there's that, Steph. And then Holy Saturday. Yeah. We're going to do 9 a.m. We're going to do 9 a.m. I think the email said 8. I actually said 9 a.m. Oh, you did. Good job. Yeah. So 9 a.m., if you're coming in at the Easter vigil, I know, super exciting, right? 9 a.m. on Holy Saturday. Okay, so um, by the way, so the, the Triduum, here's what we've done. This year has been so insane, and I am, like, just always behind. So what we decided to do is that for the Triduum, what is the Triduum? It just means three days in Latin. So for Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and then the Easter Vigil on the night of Holy Saturday, um, those Masses, what we're going to do, because we all, I hope that you have friends and family that want to come to those, what we're going to do is we're going to have overflow into the gym. And what we're going to announce this Sunday is that if anyone is really nervous about COVID, we're going to ask them to go sit in the gym and spread them out there. 
We'll have it live streamed there. They will be able to receive communion. They'll be able to see everything. We'll have it beautifully decorated. Um, but in the church, we're just like, we think we're past a place of like really having the socially distanced thing. And so we're, that's what we're going to do. And you're just to tag team on Thank that. You, yeah. I've sent a spread that link through spreadsheet, and a lot of you have already filled it out. But I'm going to try to reserve pews in the church for your you and your sponsor and the family. We we will. We will. Yeah. We will. I'm going to be there all day, serving <laughs> the pews. So that's why I'm still sending that so that I can do that and it's correct. If our family's already signed up for the mass, could we also tell me the number still because I want to tell the mass people that that number is actually our number. Does okay. that make sense? So that's why, if you just fill out that spreadsheet, it has all the tabs. There's only two. <laughs> Other questions about any of that? Thursday, what time is that at? Um, that's at Great seven. question. That's at 7. Yeah, so 7 p.m. Holy Thursday. So that's not tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow. Um, and then Friday I'll be at 3 p.m. And Easter Vigil it starts at 8, I want to say. Yep, and what time are we asking people to be there? So what do you think is in the – I said 7.30, but because I'm going to reserve pews for them and they will have already rehearsed. Good point. Yeah, so that's fine. Let's say 7.30. So I feel bad. But here's the thing. I know what you will do. When we say 7.30, that means a number of you are going to get there at 7.55. So I like to say like 7 o'clock because then you'll get there at 7.30. So if 7.30 is fine, but please try to get there. If you're being baptized, right, we need you to bring a, a change of clothes. You come to the Easter Vigil. If you are only for those of you who are being baptized, we'll go over this with you, but you, it's good to know now. Um, <clears throat> if you are being baptized, you're going to wear something that is not white when you start the Mass. After you're baptized, we'll send you to go get changed, and you're going to change into something white. Yeah, and in the email I said that, and when you check in with me on the Easter Vigil, I'll tell you what room you're going. We used to have, like, robes for people, but they're really just not very tasteful, and they just look bad, and you guys have... Yeah, they're just kind of weird. You have a better sense of fashion, you know? You guys are all beautiful, so... Wear something white after you're baptized. If you've already been baptized and you're just coming to the church at the vigil... Um, just dress somewhat nicely. You don't have to wear like a full suit and tie. You can, but you don't have to. But wear, but don't wear shorts and a t-shirt. Don't wear flip flops. You know. Um, We will have, and we'll have rooms. If you're being baptized, you know, we'll obviously, we'll have places for you to change that are private, obviously, yeah. all those kinds of things. And, and then last thing, sorry, is you're getting a separate e-bite from Colin to RSVP for the party so that we can make sure we have enough food and drinks after for both things. So that, so all that stuff, so many fun, this is not going to be a hopping party, but <laughs> it will be still fun. The Easter Vigil will go... Three and a half hours, something like that. There are, there are a total, if I remember right, there's a total of seven readings. There is a psalm for each reading. Um, people being baptized, it takes a while. But, but I will tell you this, it is the most powerful, beautiful Mass you will ever see. 
It is, it is amazing. Um, every year for me, it goes fast. But if you have like family and has like little kids, like we're, it's, we'll finish after 11. Okay? And then the last thing is the last breaking open the word is Palm Sunday. Yep. And I emailed the people that are supposed to be at that. And we're going to have two overflow RCIA classes after Easter, which I put in my email, but just so you know. That's it. Okay, other questions about, there's a lot. We will also send out, we'll send out reminders, all these kinds of things. We have the practice up for the Easter Vigil. We'll practice just before the noon mass on Palm Sunday, this coming Sunday. Anxieties, questions, concerns. Yeah. Do you need white pants as well? No. <clears throat> That's a great question. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Do we need white pants? I don't own white pants. Yeah, I don't either. Yeah. You don't see those too often. We won't ask for a raising of hands. Anybody else? Other questions? Okay, we have a special ooh, treat tonight. So before we jump into our next topic, so So this is very, very cool. So um, <clears throat> so tonight, after at the break or after class, if you want, I want to encourage you guys maybe to take a look at this. So someone recently gave this to me, and this is a relic of the true cross. Um, so what this is, if you, when you get a chance to look at this, and please, you know, we be reverent with it. You can pray with it. But this is, this, there's actually two, they're basically splinters. Um, pieces from the true cross of Christ. And so some friends of mine got this in Rome. You can't sell relics, but the way people get around it is they sell the box it holds, which drives me crazy. <clears throat> but it, it would be a sin to sell a holy thing. You can't do that. It's called simony. Um, but they, they got this for me, and so there's, you'll, you'll be able to see there's like a white cross in here. And over the white cross are these two little splinters. And <clears throat> how do we know it's a true cross? And this is just a very cool story. So this is from this, this relic of the true cross is from the Vatican. And what happened, who's the, um, who's the emperor who legalized Christianity? Constantine. Constantine, correct. So <clears throat> Constantine in the fourth century, he didn't, some people will say he made Christianity the religion of the empire. He actually didn't do that. That happened later. But he legalized it. Um, but what happens is when Constantine embraces Christianity, he sent his mother, or she of her own volition, she goes to Jerusalem in the 4th century. And it's amazing. When you go to, when you go to Jerusalem, the history is incredible. And one of the cool things that happens is people always doubt. They say, ah, oh, it's the 4th century. How do they really know where places were? One of the coolest things that's happening right now is that the more precise modern archaeology gets, it confirms all these things the church has always believed. And it's so cool. National Geographic, like three years ago, I want to say, the Israeli Antiquities Authority did a, um, 
uh, excavation of the site where the empty tomb of Jesus is, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, because there were structural issues with the church there, and they were worried about parts of it collapsing. And all these, all these people were like, ah, oh, that can't really be the place where Jesus was buried. can't be. It's got to be a later tradition. So what they did is they, they went in, and they were very careful, of course, and they had all these scientists and all these different archaeologists, and they found this marble slab where supposedly Jesus, you know, this is the spot. And they're like, obviously this is put on top of something else. And they went down, and when they got to the place where the actual original tomb is, they found that it was a limestone tomb from the first century AD. And all of these people were like, holy crap. This, like, and that doesn't prove it 100%, of course, but everyone, all these different people thought, well, maybe it's a later invention. And in, in a really powerful way, National Geographic and the Israeli Antiquities Authority confirmed as about as far as we can go with science that this was actually the place where Jesus was buried. Um, so what happened with the True Cross is that there's a long history in the Holy Land of what happened. Um, there's a huge war between the Jews and the, Rome, and the Romans in the year 66 AD. And Christians, though, always held the place of Jesus' resurrection and his crucifixion as a place of great reverence. And that was kept in the memory of the Jews, or the, of the Christians in Israel. So what happens is that's passed down generation to generation. When you get to St. Helena, the mother of Constantine, she goes to Israel, and she is out there trying to, she brings back all these things, these artifacts from the life of Christ to Rome. Um, and she builds different things, and all this stuff happens. So, there's a bunch of stuff has. Um, but what happens is they get, they get to the place where Jesus was crucified, and the local Christians are like, this is the spot. And by the way, there were tons of like, different competing theories in modern archaeology. And now, once again, like, not just because of the recent study, but no one debates the spot that the Catholic Church has always said this is it. But anyway, so you go there. If everybody wants a book, I've got some great books on this, on the archaeology of all this fascinating stuff. But what happens is they go, and the Christians lead them to the spot, and right next to, the, to Mount Calvary, there's a ravine. And what happens is the ravine, it was a, where Jesus was crucified, was a common place that they did crucifixions. And so what they would do is they would crucify people and then they would throw the wood into this ravine when they were done with it. And so they get there, and this ravine is filled with all these different beams from crucifixions. So what St. Helena did, and I just love this, is they got a bunch of people who were lepers and people who were disabled and had all kinds of problems, and they literally just started touching pieces of these beams to them. And one of them healed everyone. And that's how they found the true cross. And so they brought it back to Rome, and then it's still in Rome, most of the, like, the major pieces of it. But certain places they made, they took tiny, tiny splinters 
for Christians across the world to venerate. And they keep track of them, and I have a, it's crazy. In my office, there's this document that looks like it's from about 300. It's crazy. It's later than that, but it's they, they track these things, and there's very strict rules about them. So really cool thing. So if you want to pray with it, a great like it's like people don't know what to do with relics. An easy thing to do is you can just hold it and just make the sign of the cross with it. Okay? I'm going to put this over here because I'll, I want to knock it off. Okay. Here we go. Um, you ready? Yeah. Okay. So we're going to jump into morality tonight. And um, Patrick, will you grab me the eraser or somebody? Um, so let's review really quick. We're almost done with class, and we're halfway through the catechism. So, worst teacher ever. <laughs> but, um, but you have the rest of your lives to, to learn the rest. Thank you, Colin. Um, so let's review really quick pillars. So, first pillar of the catechism is what? Those are the sacraments. Sacraments of initiation. First section of the creed, or I just said it's the creed. <laughs> and the creed is what God has done in history. So Christianity doesn't start with you, right? It doesn't start with you getting your act together. It doesn't start with you figuring out. It starts with what God has done in history. And so the first pillar of the catechism is, here's what God has done in history. The second pillar, anybody? Tradition? Nope. We just finished it. Sacraments. What sacraments do is that here's what God did in history, and guess what? It's not just something that happened in the past. But through the sacraments, you and I are drawn mystically into God's saving action in history. Right? The sacraments draw us into Christ. The third pillar is where a lot of people want to start, is with morality. And the logic here is that you actually can't live a Christian moral life without these. It isn't that you overcame a sin in your life, and you're like, you know, I always think of um, VeggieTales. You guys watch VeggieTales? In VeggieTales, they have the pirates who slap each other with fish. I love that. It looks so fun. Or it's in Nineveh. That's what it is. They're in Nineveh, and the way they show them to be sinners for little kids is they all have fish, and they slap each other with fish. And I'm like, man, that looks fun. I didn't do that to one of you guys. Um, but it's not like, oh, man, I stopped slapping people with fish, so therefore God can now love me. All right, it's backwards. It's the other way around. So what happens is when you discover you're loved, life changes. Um, and <clears throat> through the grace of God and the sacraments, we're empowered to live a transformed life. And so now, because, so we're, we're not, God has acted first, the sacraments bring us into the story, where it's not just God's story, it's our story. But now we are called to play a definitive role in our life. You have a role to play, you have a mission to live, 
and you have a way that you are called to, to be light in the darkness in this world. And that's why this is third. And then lastly, the fourth pillar is prayer. And prayer sustains you through the whole thing. Uh, it keeps you in union with God, and it keeps you in it for the long haul. So that's, that's the basic logic of the catechism. Any questions about that? Okay, so let's look at your handout. Are there any extra? I need to get one. Fish. So let's read a little bit of scripture on this to just think about how scripture thinks of these things. <clears throat> so Titus, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. St. Paul, this is St. Paul writing to Titus. He says, he's saying to Titus, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show every courtesy to everyone. So Paul's going to remind Titus, here's some of the ways we behave as Christians. Why? This next passage. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. And I, I just want you to think about this for a second. Think of our world when you hear this. Right? Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. If that doesn't describe the modern world, I don't know what does. Passing our days in malice and, and envy, despicable, hating one another. Look at our culture right now. Right? People hate each other. And this is the key verse, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done right, can't save yourself. God's action goes first. We didn't get our act together, and then God said, hey, because you lived a good life, I'll love you now. That's not what happened, right? He saved us not because of any good works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the water of rebirth, what's that? Baptism, Baptism and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This spirit he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I love that verse. Absolutely love it. And to me, that describes the Christian life so well. I didn't deserve it. God loved me when I was very broken. He loved me anyways. He sent the Holy Spirit in baptism to save me. And now he's called me to the hope of eternal life. And so I should no longer go through my days as a slave to passion and envy. Right? I love the, the translation being despicable and hating one another. Okay. One more we'll read. So this is Colossians. Colossians 3 and chapter, both 2 and 3. I think we've had this on some of your handouts before. 
all the language in Colossians 2 and 3 is about baptism. And what Paul's going to say here is he's going to say, hey, remember your old life? This is how you lived? Put that off. Take it off, which is baptismal language, because when you go to get baptized, you stripped naked. We're not doing that on the Easter Vigil. I bet you're grateful for that. Um, but you would strip naked, and that was a symbol of your old life. You went through the saving waters of baptism, and you put on a white robe, which was symbolic of your salvation in Christ and the new life that you're called to lead. And so here's what Paul says in Colossians. <clears throat> put to death, therefore, what is earthly, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life. By the way, you guys coming into the church, you are the best witnesses for Jesus Christ. The most powerful people that can witness to God in the world are not people who have never committed sins. They're people who say, you know what, my old life is broken, but I encountered the love of God in Jesus. That's a super powerful witness. Okay, verse 8. But now you must get rid of all these things. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices. Right? When you guys change, you're going to change from your old clothing at the Easter Vigil if you're getting baptized, to new clothing, and that's your life. Right? You have to put behind what belongs to the old, the old self, put on the new self. Do not lie to one another, seeing you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourself with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Bless you. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Clothe yourselves, this is your white garment. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Okay, so biblically, this is the way the Bible thinks about morality. The way the Bible thinks about morality is the Exodus story. And one, one quote I didn't put on your sheets, which I probably should have, is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which has been a big theme of ours when we talk about the Exodus story. Essentially what it is... Right, the, the story that is our story, my story is that I was a slave in Egypt. Right, Egypt is a place of sin. 
And I was a slave to, to sin in my life. Just like Titus chapter 3 says. I passed my days in hatred of others, a slave to passions. This is Egypt. By the way, I think there's a, one more quote. Sorry. There's always one more quote. Yeah, that next quote from Origin. Lest you think this is just Father Brian. <clears throat> Origen says, see if the affairs of the world and the acts of the, of the flesh are not the house of bondage. Just as, on the contrary, to leave worldly matters and to live according to God is the house of freedom. Egypt, therefore, is the house of bondage. But Judea and Jerusalem are the house of freedom. So, being baptized in Christian morality is a part of a story. Right? And you hear this when people have like life transforming events. When, um, remember that like Tim McGraw song, Don't Live Like You Were Dying? It's a little bit like that. It's like, you know, if, if you went through, if you, had a, you were in a terrible car wreck, our sacristan, actually, that's a great story. Our sacristan here, Dorothy, our head sacristan, when she, like 30 years ago or 40, she was in a terrible car wreck. And she always said God gave her a second chance of life. She changed everything. And what the Bible wants you to understand is that when Jesus, when you are baptized, you have gone through the Red Sea. And that old life where you live for pleasure and power, right, and prestige, when you, your old life died here. It died in the waters of baptism. It was crucified on the cross. And so now, 1 Corinthians 10, now we're on our way to the promised land. That's PL, promised land. We're on our way there, but we're not there yet. And so now, this is 1 Corinthians 10. Now you and I have to try to be faithful in the desert. Guess what's going to happen in the desert? I promise you, it's going to be harder than you think. And I hope right now, I hope all of you, I hope RCIA has been this experience of like, wow, this is amazing. This is everything I was created for. I was made for God. This is it. And I hope that's the case. Temptation will come, just like it did for the Jews. And our job is to be faithful in the desert and to leave Egypt behind. Okay, quick pause, questions about any of that. Okay, so that is that is the biblical understanding where we think about morality. Now we got to set up for all the controversial questions that everyone has. Now, one of the great things about being a Catholic is that we believe right in faith and reason. And we believe that God is the author of both. And then ultimately, they can't contradict one another. The, the New Testament just kind of assumes that the teachings that we teach today and always have in the church are just obvious. And I kind of still think they are. Guess what? If you're going to be a Christian, you don't get to live for pleasure. If you're going to be a Christian, you don't get to live for money. 
If you're going to follow Jesus Christ, you don't get to live as if you are the center of the world. If you're going to follow him, you have to leave that life behind, and you have to give your life for something greater than yourself. If you don't want to do that, you honestly shouldn't come into the church. That's that because that's what it means to be a Christian. Okay, it's kind of fiery tonight. <laughs> Take that. Um, okay, so here's a question. Um, aside from the biblical worldview, if you're going to ask, just on I don't know a natural level, why should I live a moral life? If someone if someone asked you that question, they came up to you tomorrow and they said, hey. You're at RCIA with Father Brian. Why should I live a moral life? What's a good answer for that? I don't think that morality is relative. I think it's absolute. Okay. So, morality is absolute. That is true. Right? As my mother says, the Ten Commandments are not multiple choice. Right? So they're so they're they're absolute. They are they're commandments. So we have like a duty. Why else? True fulfillment and happiness. Okay, good. True fulfillment and happiness. What is a true happiness? Yep. And it brings about order. Yep. Good. Anybody else? It's what God wills for us, like to Okay. Yeah, will of God. Good. You guys are hitting them. Any other answers? Okay. Say, yep. Or was this question to be outside the context of I mean, just if I just just randomly, like if someone if someone came up to you and said, Why should I live a moral life? My friend, there's a friend here who he literally went through this question just internally when before I met him, but he was a college kid. And he's a prisoner here now. But he uh, he went through this question of like, why should I not be a supervillain? He literally asked himself that. Like <laughs> Is there a reason I shouldn't just like use people and do everything I can just to make everything about me? And he went through this intellectual exercise, and praise God, he's a Catholic. Decided not to do that. But yeah, do you have another answer? Well, I think yeah. Well, if it's outside the context, how do you define that? Like, what is morality? What yep. is morality outside the church? Yeah, very good. We're gonna get to that. We're gonna try and answer that question. How do you know what's moral? We assume a lot, but actually, like, this is one of the topics I want to hit next. Yep. Right. Yeah, we intuitively know it's right, right? Like, um, there we would we would say that as Christians, right? There is something written on our hearts, but we'd also say it can be distorted, right? People can have the best of intentions. Like, like a friend of mine would say, when he was a college kid, like God wrote generosity on our hearts, but that can be distorted, 
and he was like, you know, my college friends, they they would share their hard alcohol with me so we could get smashed all the time. <laughs> and they considered that like an act of generosity, right? And like I, like, I get it. I'm like, I like it when people share their wine, you know, it's good. But it can be distorted, right? Yep. So there's like a wisdom tradition of morality. Good. These are all, I think you guys are hitting them well. So I want to do a really quick history lesson for you. Here, and here's the thing. So I want you to understand the world we're in now. I only brought, I had like eight books out of my table tonight to kind of prep for tonight's class. I brought one of them for show and tell. Um, this book, again, all the books I recommend, as Patrick always calls me on, are difficult books. This is a very difficult book. It's not a, if you do not have a philosophy degree, you probably shouldn't try this one. But this is a very important book in moral philosophy. It's called After Virtue. It's a very famous book. Um, the author, by the way, after he wrote this book, converted to Catholicism. Um, but basically, there's a whole lot of stuff going on in this book. It's very dense, very good. But um, one of the things he says is, he asks that question is, um, one of the chapters is about how does the modern world ask, ask that or answer that question? And here's, here's what McIntyre shows. As he says, in the, if you study morality, there are two answers traditionally. And a lot of things you guys said are kind of brought into these two. But there's two answers that people would give as to why you should live a moral life. And what they would say is, one, is because God commands it. And the other one, and this is, this is Aristotle, but it's lots of people, the other one is some form of, you guys said it, you can say it two ways. One way to say it is because it's according to human nature. Which is another way of saying it will make you happy. And what we mean by that, let me make one Greek nerdy distinction. So when Aristotle talks about this, the normal word for someone who's happy or has like a blessed life, the normal word for that in Greek is makarios. Aristotle's word is not that. He doesn't say that morality will make you makarios. The word he uses is just a fun word to say. It's eudaimonia. There's some like pot shop or something I've seen that had this called eudaimonia, and I'm like, oh man, that's good. It's a lie, <laughs> but I love that you have that, that name. I'm like, that's cool. So eudaimonia, like, so Macarios could, could mean, man, I'm just happy I had a great day. The sun's shining, the birds are chirping. My boss gave me a raise today. I got, I got in the right lane on I-25. It's a great day. That's Macarios. Um, eudaimonia is 
it could be better translated as flourishing. And we'll get to this. So what that means, and what we're going to get to is the Catholic Church believes both of these things. And guess what? God, and the reason God commands things is so that you might flourish. Right? When you were a teenager or a little kid, or when you were a little kid, that's easier, right? And you're like, I was at my friends, the Emersons. Uh, was that last night? No, it was two nights ago. Two nights ago, up at Fort Collins, good friends of mine. And um, they have four little kids, right? And um, one of them, I think it was Beckett, or maybe it was Ephraim. They have a little son named Ephraim. And Ephraim's like, he wanted a cookie, you know, and he had, had three already. And his dad was like, okay, sure. And his mom's like, don't you dare. <laughs> like, and you know, we all know these stories. Little Ephraim is, starts crying, <laughs> right? And he's just like, oh, my mom and dad. Father Brian's here, I need a fourth cookie. Um, and why does parents give that rule? Because they want him to flourish, but in the moment, he's not really happy. No one would look at Ephraim in that moment and be like, oh man, that's one happy kid. <laughs> right? <laughs> They're like, I don't know what they would say. Okay, we, you all know that distinction. God's laws are not for your immediate happiness, but they are for your good. And so human nature, what we want to say here, and let's do this really quick, is that um, what we believe is that nature, we don't mean nature like the woods going out to the wilderness. We mean that things are a certain way, like it or not. So if you, um, the story that we used to use in focus for this is like, if I'm driving down the road and my car breaks down and Connor sees me and he's a nice guy, and he's like, oh, there's Father Brian, and he's pretty helpless. His, his uh, hood's up on his car. There's smoke coming out of the engine. I'm going to stop, and I'm going to help him. And Connor comes to me. He's like, FB, what's going on? What's happening with your car? I'm like, oh, man, I broke down. I don't know. Um, and he walks up, and I've got two jars. And I've got, I've got a plastic thing of oil. I've got some Penn's oil. I've got a thing of oil from my car. And I've got a jar of mayonnaise, right? And I'm like, man, you know, my car's broken down, and I just, I'm trying to figure out what to do. Right? And Connor's like, well, what do you mean what are you going to do? You're, you're obviously out of oil. Let's, let's put the oil in your, in your car. I'm like, hold on. Hold on, Connor. <laughs> Back off. All right? Like, that might be good for you. Right? You see where this is going? It might be good for you. Maybe you like oil, but maybe I like molasses. Back off. So Connor's like, okay, be you're crazy. I really love you. I want to help you. I'm going to go, and I'm going to get the owner's manual. I'm going to show you. It says only, you know, this type of oil should ever go in this car. Don't ever put anything else in. Now I'm pissed. Right? How dare... How dare the car maker? This is my car. How dare they tell me what to do with my car? Right? So I put the molasses in my engine block, and I have a very expensive paperweight. Right? And so 
this is what nature means. It means you can say, you know what, I'm sick of growing plants in sunshine. I want to grow a plant in my closet, and I want to feed it with Pepsi. You can try that all you want, but the, the plant will not flourish. And so the ancient answer, why should I live a good life, is because, and let me make this obvious, and we're going to we're gonna get to this in virtue, which we might get to tonight, we'll see. Um, this isn't a really bold claim. People today in the modern world think that we're just ramming things down people's throats. We'll get to the controversial things. That's probably next class. Um, but all we mean right now is the human beings have a nature, and it turns out that what's good for human beings is this thing called virtue. And so much so, and by the way, the Bible teaches this, but so does reason. So Aristotle taught this before Christ. It's also in the Bible. Uh, Roman philosophers teach this. You can come to a knowledge of this. And isn't that the great thing about our faith, is that what God teaches lines up with what we can come to know on a lot of things. So, I know this is a lot, but hang with me. What's a, what, is, what is a virtue? Not an example of what's the definition of a virtue. Okay, goal. Um, not quite, but that's it's on the right track. Okay, it's an attribute or a characteristic. Okay, getting there. But is it any kind of attribute? Um, so what, what a virtue is, is a good habit. That's all it is. Which makes a vice a bad habit. And what makes it different than, any, than other characteristics is like your gifting is not a virtue. Right? So my beautiful hair, it's a characteristic I have, but it's not a virtue. A virtue is a good habit that you have developed. Vice is a bad habit that you've developed. Okay. So here's what Western civilization has always said, is that the key virtues are justice, prudence, temperance, and um, fortitude. Now just hang with me, I know we're doing a lot right now, but we're still right here. When we're talking about virtues and good habits, we're saying, you wanna be happy, right? What the world teaches us will make you happy is more stuff. We all fall for it, we all know it's not ultimately true, but we fall for it anyways. And I'm like, man, if I just, if I just had that vacation home in Telluride, if I just had that. If I just had the Maserati, Right, if I whatever it is, then I'd be happy. We all know on some level it's not true, but we all fall for it. Okay, so here's the point. Imagine justice means treating other people as they deserve to be treated. It just means I treat people well. I don't use them. I'm honest with them. I treat them as they deserve to be treated. Prudence is like eyesight. Prudence is like um, 
I, the way I always describe it is like if you're if I was a great basketball player and I had hand speed and athleticism and I could dunk and all these things, but if I got if I lost my eyesight at some point, I wouldn't know how to use those skills, right? I could misuse them. Prudence is like that. So prudence is like maybe someone's really courageous and they're like, man, I need to be courageous. They have courage and they stand up to difficult things, but they do it at the wrong time in the wrong way when actually what they needed to do was just shut up and listen and kind of like wait. That's a lack of prudence. Temperance means that my good desires, I control my good desires instead of my good desires controlling me. So all of us desire sleep and food and sex and entertainment and, I don't know, Krispy Kreme donuts. Whatever it is, we desire these things. And those are all good, every one of them. But temperance says, my desire for alcohol is something that I control instead of alcohol controlling me. That's temperance. And fortitude is, is a willingness to suffer for what's good. It's courage. So I know this is a long thing. We'll pause here just a second. Imagine, do you think, imagine someone who has everything. If you're in marriage prep with me, you've probably heard this from me because I use this in marriage prep. Imagine if you had everything you ever wanted. Right? Like, you are ex extraordinarily wealthy. You are super attractive. You're charming. You're intelligent. You're funny. Blah, 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 blah. But you don't have those four things. Can you be happy? You will be absolutely miserable. If you had everything you ever wanted, but you were not this, you would be absolutely miserable. This is what we mean by human nature. And it's not just in America, it's in any culture anywhere. You will never find a truly happy person who does not treat other people fairly. You'll never find it. You know, anywhere in the world, you go to any period in history, you find someone who uses other people for their own ends, I promise you, you will have found a miserable person. Okay, we've just covered a lot already. Questions, pushback, complaints. Yeah, right. Talking about happiness, um, what about blessedness? Yep, so it's, in English, these words come across different. Um, you asked a really good question that I wish you hadn't answered. But to confuse things, that word uh, makarios is a word that the, the Greek would use for the blessedness of the gods. And it's actually the word in the New Testament that Jesus uses for the Beatitudes. But when we talk about Aristotle, his word is eudaimonia. And so, so Jesus is going to say, and if you think of Jesus talking about blessedness, like when he says, he doesn't exactly say blessed are the rich. Right? Blessed are those who are good-looking. Blessed are those who are funny. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So Jesus, conceptually at least, is on the same page, even if it's not the same word. Does that make sense? Yeah. Other questions? Okay, let's take a quick break. Because now we're going to come back, we're going to talk about these and how we got to where we're at today. Use the restroom, get a quick drink, 
If you want to see the relic of the true cross, we'll pick back up in a couple minutes. The goal of Telus and the blessedness. Yeah, and so, so what N.T. Wright is saying here is that, so what this is Jesus' image of Aristotle, is that eudaimonia is the human level. And what Wright's saying here is that Ikarios is going to go even beyond that in okay. Jesus' sense. But, and so what I'm doing here, though, is like, just, just trying to contrast like the normal word for happiness. Yeah. Jesus is going to elevate that because right of like, there's a blessedness that's beyond God, a human. Yeah. It is confusing. Yeah. I was wondering, I'm like, how is he asking this? I was like, I was like, he kind of caught me a lot of notes. Yeah. You were glossing something. It never hurts to appropriate. Absolutely. It never hurts to invite. He might he might say that would be wonderful. He might not be able to make it. Of course. But yeah, that would be it would be okay. Yeah, he would he would be honored by it. Okay. Yeah. That's what I want to try. Mm-hmm. You guys are such a quiet group. I read his 12 rules for life. In general, I really like him. Um, I love his like responsibility and like he's very much on on this kind of like what's going to make you happy in life is not getting in your way. It's becoming a certain type of person. Um, his biblical stuff, I, he doesn't. He, he's reading it through a psychological lens, and so I'm like, I love that he's engaging the text, but I'm like. You're reading it through a pair of glasses that are, are the wrong pair. I was uh, meditating a lot on the emotionality aspect of Lot. Yeah. There's a phrase I've heard before. There's a lot of it on different Yep. To, to even say that morality is relative, truth presupposes that morality exists. And what it does is it is not relative. It's not ethereal. Right. So that's what gets struck the group for a lot of different aspects. And then.
sort of get closer and closer and closer. The more that you sort of confront truth, the more that God shows up. Right? Yeah, no, that, I couldn't agree more. And it's been interesting watching him as he gets, and I love the, just the way he's able, when you get these people who just dismiss, he's like, really? He's like, the greatest wisdom traditions in the history of the world all say this, and you're just going to, like, like, really? And I'm like, I love that. It's just nice to see somebody who's, like, that intelligent, and he's like, you can't do that. It's interesting to see like a secular person come to a conclusion. Yeah. It's like an inch away from it. Yeah. I think. I agree with you. Yeah, I do like Jordan Peterson. All right, let's do this, people. So here's how we got where we're at in the modern world. Um. So again, what I'm what I'm giving you here is just stolen straight from Alistair McIntyre, and he's just amazing. And it's funny, like in seminary in my philosophy studies, I studied a lot of this, but he just put it together for me in a way that I was like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what happened. So, so the ancient world says, why should I why should I live a good life? The the answer through basically all of human history is that God made you to live a certain way, and you can't pour Pepsi on a plant in the dark and expect it to grow, and because God commands it. So that, that answer goes from as far back as we know in human history, and it goes all the way in Western civilization until a period called the Enlightenment. which is 18th century to the 19th. So um, from the 1700s into the 1800s, you get the Enlightenment. And by the way, my favorite thing to, to tell people about the Enlightenment is um, the Enlightenment named itself. It did. It named itself. And one of the big rules of, of life is you don't give, get to give yourself your own nickname. My buddy in college did this. He was actually he's one of my best friends from my childhood. He's my best friend from my childhood. I grew up with him, Eric Schmidt, love him to death. And we were friends all through our childhood. We went to CU together. We lived together at CU. And one day at CU, Eric Schmidt comes out of his room and I'm on the couch and he goes, Brian, I've been thinking about this and I want you to call me sweetness. <laughs> True story. And I was like, oh, hell no. <laughs> I was like, first of all, there's already someone with that nickname. His name's Walter Payton. You ain't him. And of all things you are, you are not sweetness. <laughs> but my brother thought it was the funniest thing ever. So my brother would see him at CU's campus, and he'd like scream. He's like, sweetness! <laughs> and he'd like chase him across the quads. That was funny. Anyway, you can't give yourself your own nickname. So the enlightenment, what is enlightened, right, means to bring light. So they, the thinkers of this period called themselves the enlightenment. But if you're going to bring light, what do you bring light to? So you ever heard of the dark ages? That was made up by the enlightenment because they had to bring light somewhere. And so what they said is this whole period, especially the Christian ages, they called these the dark ages. 
dun dun dun. And this makes its way into popular culture. I remember as a child growing up with Disney's Sword in the Stone, which is set in the Dark Ages, right? Um, really what the Dark Ages are were the periods of Christian civilization. And were there problems? Yes, blah, 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 blah. But that's true. So here's what happened with the Enlightenment, is the Enlightenment decided, the Enlightenment comes around, and the Enlightenment decides there is no God, which they never proved, by the way. It's really interesting to study the history. The ways that the world came to an atheistic place has very, very little to do with intellectual thought. It has everything to do with Christians being Uh, but they decided God doesn't exist and there is no human nature. And we still use this language, right? People say, well, this is, this is what's best for you. And they say, well, you're just imposing that on me. Bless you. So the Enlightenment wants to get rid of both of those things. And then the Enlightenment asks the question, if there is no God and there is no human nature, why should I live a good life? And you get all kinds of different answers to that. And I had read all of these guys. I had read all of them, and they all write about this. But I never really put all this together until I read McIntyre. And I'm like, oh, that's what they're doing. So in this period, um, you get people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He has something called... Uh, the social contract. Does anybody know what the social contract is? Yes, <laughs> yes but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> yeah, the social contract is there is no morality, really, but I don't want to get killed and you don't want to get killed, so let's agree not to kill each other. And so Rousseau is trying to seek an answer of why should I be moral if there is no God and there is no human nature. And that's a really bad answer, right? Because at the end of the day, most of us actually think there's something immoral about murdering someone. Rousseau didn't. You get thinkers like Hume. One of my favorites is, um, I'm not going to forget his name. Um, you get Jeremy Bentham. And a guy most people know better is John Stuart Mill. Bentham. Anybody know what Mill and Bentham's system is called? Gosh, you guys are good. Practice. Right, utilitarianism tries to create a calculation around morality where what's moral is what does the most good for the most people. But morality is just turned into math, and it doesn't work. No one's really utilitarian. I mean, they are practically, but thinkers, no, no serious philosopher thinks that this holds any water whatsoever. So all these thinkers are going around, they're trying to do this. Um, the most famous is Immanuel Kant, Immanuel Kant goes through a very elaborate and very detailed and difficult intellectual system where he tries to answer this question. 
And here's what happens to, to, to kind of draw this to a close. Um, change marker colors for dramatic emphasis. Um, don't drop beer, it's immoral. Um, what happens is that at the end of this period, these guys fail. And at the end of the day, they cannot come up with an answer to why you should live a moral life if these two things aren't true. And at the end of this period, so the Enlightenment wraps up, it fails in this project, and there's a thinker who calls them on it. So at the end of this period, there's a, there's a philosopher who comes along, around, and what he says is he says, he just calls a spade a spade, and he says, bullshit. This is all BS, and none of it works. That thinker's name, anybody know? You get an extra star, gold star if you know who it is. This is Frederick Nietzsche. And everybody's like, I was going to say that. So Nietzsche, and I know this, this is a really heady class tonight. I know that. I'm sorry if it's, over, if it's overly intellectual. But I think it's important. And here we're drawing it to the, to the final conclusion that's going to set up all of our problems for all of the big moral problems. They all come down to this. So what happens is Nietzsche says BS. And um, his big term that he's famous for, one of them, is he, call, he has what's called the Ubermensch. But essentially what Nietzsche says is he says, there is no such thing as morality. It doesn't exist. The world is meaningless. And what Nietzsche's philosophy says is he says, the world's a blank canvas. There is no morality. There is no meaning. But the person who is a creative genius, an artist, just a great person, they shape morality as they see and so the world, how the world is, doesn't impose on you, because there is no world. You impose what you want on the world. If you're not seeing connections to where our society is today, think about that. Our society is filled with a lot of people who think it is absurd to think that the world could have meaning and that we could be bound by what the world is. My truth, right? Yeah. Is that considered relativism? Nietzsche wasn't a relativist, but he is the foundation for relativism. So, so what, what McIntyre says, and here we go, this is so funny. At the end of the day, if you, without God, right? I mean, in Aristotle believed in God, but what, what McIntyre says is in the entire history of the world, there are only two Worldviews, like ways of seeing life that are, that are consistent and make sense. There's only two. There are variations. There are divides in the road. There's details. But at the end of the day, there's really only two ways to see the world. One is Aristotle. And one is Nietzsche. I'm going to bring up questions in a second, but here's what I want you to see. If you understand this, 
you will understand why the Catholic Church believes everything it believes. And why it believes that to, to believe what the church teaches on controversial issues, you don't have to be a Christian. All you have to believe is that you don't get to define reality, but you have to discover reality. So Aristotle says you discover truth. Nietzsche says there is no such thing as truth. You invent Does that make sense? Okay, questions? And then we can start, we can maybe hit a couple of controversial topics to start things off. What did uh, Nietzsche mean by God is dead and he killed him? So he is, Nietzsche doesn't believe God ever existed. That's in a book called Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which is kind of just a fun title. Um, but basically, Zarathustra is just announcing that there never was a god. But that's just his way of saying it. God is dead. We killed him. But really, there's all this imagery in that scene of the spoke Zarathustra about the Enlightenment. There's all this kind of stuff about the Enlightenment. And Zarathustra comes out of it, and he says it was all, everything that went beforehand, it's all Do you want a great book about this? The, the best refutation probably ever written against Nietzsche was by Fyodor Dostoevsky. I just like these big, are you guys impressed with these names? Right? My mom always makes fun of me. Are you there, mom? Um, Dostoevsky wrote a book about this. <clears throat> and it's a novel, right? He wasn't a philosopher, he kind of was, but he was a novelist. Dostoevsky wrote a book called Crime and Punishment. Has anybody read Crime and Punishment? Thank you. Uh, crime and Punishment is about this. Crime and Punishment starts, I'm not reading the book because this is the first chapter of the book. It's going to sound like him. The book begins with a mysterious murder where an old woman is murdered and the police can't figure out why anyone would murder her. Nothing's broken, nothing's stolen, she has no enemies, there's no motive. And the book starts and the main character, Raskolnikov, Russians have fun names, what you, learn, what you find out is there's a young man named Raskolnikov, and guess who he's reading in his life right then? He is reading Nietzsche. And what, what Nietzsche teaches is that he has a book called Beyond Good and Evil. And that, if I remember right, that's the book that Raskolnikov is reading. And what Nietzsche says is murder's not wrong. There's no meaning in the world. That's for the peasants. That's for the sheep. And if you're strong, you make up your own morality. You invent it. So Raskolnikov kills a woman to prove that he is a great man and that he is above morality. And that he is so powerful that he does not discover morality, he invents it. And the rest of the book is so good, you should all read it. But you, only, you can only read Russian novels in wintertime because they're super depressing. <laughs> um, so... Go read it next winter. But the rest of the book is about how Raskolnikov's punishment is that there is human nature. And his punishment is not that the police catch him and throw him in prison. Crime and punishment, the punishment is not that, that 
that there's an external punishment. The punishment is that God made you a certain way, and if you kill someone, you will be miserable. And the book shows you how Raskolnikov, that his crime is its own punishment. And he has to live the rest of his days as, a, as someone who murdered someone. I love that. Isn't that cool? Powerful reputation. Okay, questions? Quick. So Nietzsche, yep. Nietzsche called BS on the Enlightenment, which, which was very analytical and sort of almost economical in its thinking and why people do what they do. Yep. And Nietzsche said what they were saying is there's no morality, but he's saying well, there is morality, but we create it specifically through art. And yeah, it's just, it's just made up. Okay. So there's no real morality. And what he says, and so his term of that Ubermensch means it's like the overman is how people translate it. But it's, 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 it's a great man who is, has the courage to say, it's all BS, and so I don't have, I don't have something to guide me, but I'm, I'm this genius, and I will impose my own things on the world. Well, still so incorrect in the West, right? I mean, he wouldn't even say incorrect. There's nothing to, to compare it against to say correct. It's just made up. Well, so it's not real. Well, it's just it's, it's invented. Because he's still saying it's morality sort of in flux. It's not in flux. There is, as Aristotle would argue, Aristotle would argue. Prove. If, you, yeah. if you go with Nietzsche, what Hitler did was perfectly okay. Yeah. It's okay to write Nazis. Right. Because he wanted to do it, and he was inventing morality, so it's okay. Yeah, it's, it has similarities to Jean Jacques Rousseau's social contract in some ways, where it's like Nietzsche, you know, it's easy to demonize Nietzsche, and I feel that way sometimes. But like Rousseau would say, um, murder's not wrong, but I don't want to get murdered and you don't. And so like, no, and he would have been like, he wouldn't have wanted, you know, the Nazis, but he wouldn't have wanted because, well, I don't want that and you don't want it, so let's just agree not to do it. But it's not real. It's just made up. Murder's not really wrong. It's just made up. Okay, other, yeah. So what's the, the Aristotle argument on discovery? Is it just that it's a lived experience? Like you have to live doing something bad and realize, okay, well, that I actually don't flourish or feel fulfilled or happy in doing that? Is yeah, that is, it, is it there's a rational way that we encounter the way the world works? And so, so you could, like one way, somebody said it earlier tonight, you could learn it from your parents, right? Like in Aristotle, we'll talk about this. Um, of your parents teaching you. But like, for instance, like, like part of justice, justice is treating people fairly. Well, people deserve to be told the truth. So if you say, well, I don't want to tell people the truth, I'm just going to be a liar, right? Aristotle would say both. It's just we all kind of have this intuition that lying is going to end up in a bad place. But he's also like, go try it. And you'll discover that, that living a life where you think it's okay to just constantly lie is like kicking a rock, right? You're gonna you're gonna hurt yourself and other people. You won't hurt the rock, but I don't know why I didn't hold markers. Okay, anybody else? Okay, so let's ask you guys a question. And one thing that happens, one of the things McIntyre points out, is that Nietzsche never really engaged Aristotle. He only really engages the Enlightenment thinkers. And he just assumes that Nietzsche or that Aristotle has been refuted, which isn't true. Okay, so let's point out. Does someone want to help me on this? Here's the here's the 
quote-unquote sexy part of class, how is this manifested in our world today? Ken, where does that go? But like, which does it go with Aristotle or Nietzsche? Nietzsche. Right, so. Gender fluidity, right? Think about this. My body doesn't really matter. What matters is how I feel. And so I don't discover what it means to be male or female. I am going to impose what I think that should be and what I think I should be on the world outside of me. Now we'll get to, I hope you guys know, I think at this point in the class you know this, but I just want to say it anyways, with all compassion, right? We'll talk about, we'll probably go into gender fluidity and um, uh, gender dysphoria in a deeper way. Um, and of course, the only proper response from any compassionate human being is to love that person. But we, I don't think it's good for them to say, we think, we think if they say, well, I'm gonna change my gender, I'm gonna go through puberty blockers, and then I'm gonna have surgery to change my body, that's not gonna make them happy. Because God made you a certain way, and he made you good, and we'll, we'll get to that. Okay, but other examples. Abortion. Okay, abortion, where's that go? They're all gonna go with Nietzsche, right? <laughs> Let's just, let's just do this, like, um, we'll do this, Catholics. <laughs> Catholics side with, with Aristotle. And a lot of Christians, most Christians, side with Aristotle. What else? What's another example? Gay marriage. Gay marriage, right? Because, and what we're going to go into depth. There's one more I want to hit that's another, the big, really, controversial one that goes hand in hand with this one. And for all of these, right, all the controversial issues, what we want to do with all of them is we want to be compassionate with others, assume the best, all those things. But to love someone means to tell them the truth. Telling lies to people does never, it never helps them. There's one more big one. It's the most controversial teaching that only Catholics are like the last people on earth that believe. Premarital sex is also kind of that, but what is it? Contraception. Am I missing any like really controversial? Martin Luther. Martin Luther, yeah. That's not a morality so much, right? Any other really controversial moral? You all spoke at once. What? Cohabitation. Cohabitation. In my mind, same one as contraception, but we'll put it there. Um, I just put premarital. If I just write premarital, I don't think you mean, you know that I don't mean premarital like cooking or something, right? Okay. Am I, am I missing other big ones? What? Death penalty. Death penalty. That one actually is a little bit. We wouldn't, I don't think this fits that as well, but, let's, but that is a controversial one, and we should talk about that. It doesn't quite fit the same paradigm in my mind, but that is controversial. The other one, like, like death penalty, other controversial issues, I guess, are immigration. How do we treat immigrants justly and with charity? Immigrants. Communism. Communism. 
Yeah, I mean, communism is, communism, interestingly enough, is part of that alignment. It grows out of that alignment system. Communism is another search for how do we find happiness. Um, and why should I live a moral life? But, but we can put that down here too. Communism, socialism. Okay, we got more. Euthanasia, thank you. That's a really good one. That does belong here. Yeah, we already had it up. Gosh, Stephanie. Okay, so really quick, we're not going to get in depth to any of these tonight, but what I want you to see is at least for most of these, at least these, these ones are the same issue as one way to look at. Do, do we find happiness by discovering what is moral and what the world is? Or do we just, are we free to just kind of make it up as we go? And what the church believes is that imagine if you applied that to every area of life. Imagine if I'm driving down the highway and I'm driving um, 67 and a 25. And the cop pulls me over and says, you're driving 67 and 25. And I say, well, I don't feel like it is. Like, like that's your truth, not mine. What's the, what's the cop's argument to that? Wait, what is it? Yeah, he's like, he's like, ha father, see you in court, right? Like, no, but if, if you were the cop, if you were, if the cop wanted to be in a, like, in an argument and be like, why, why should the speed limit, like, and let's do it this way, like, let's be just more reasonable about it. If you, if you're going on like a two-lane highway, like two lanes going one direction, so maybe that's a four-lane highway, if there's four lanes, there's no stoplights, and like a number of years ago, the speed limit was 55 in Colorado on those kinds of roads. It's probably like 15 years ago. I don't know. 55. I remember driving. It's like 55, and like there's no stoplights. There's no exit ramps. Like there's four lanes, and it's 55. And I'm like, this is unjust. <laughs> Why God? Right? Like, how dare? Like, this is so unjust. And my my argument, the reason it's unjust, is because of what's real. The world. This is reality. Reality dictates that the law should be this. Right? And, and conversely, the same thing for the cop. If, I, if I'm driving 65 and a 25, and I'm like, that's ridiculous, I feel like driving 65. His right, re rebuttal is, there's a school here, it's one lane, and you're in a neighborhood. Reality dictates law, not vice versa. Okay, we have five minutes. Other questions? Okay, let's do this really quick. Um, I need to do the stats tonight. I usually do, but um, the way to understand all the sexual ethics in the modern world is to understand contraception. So let's do this really quick. So I'll try to remember to bring you guys stats on this next week. Um, but a couple of cool facts. Um, prior to 1931, every single Christian denomination in the world, without exception, every single one taught that contraception was immoral. Every single one. And I think it's 1931. There's an annual conference of Anglicans. It's called the Lambeth Conference. The Lambeth Conference in 1931 for Anglicans was the first Christian church to ever say contraception's okay. 
And what, what they did, though, is for very serious reasons within marriage. And it had to be very serious reasons. First time any Christian church ever taught that. So some of them fall, but time passes. Um, and here's the interesting thing. So at a, around 1900, and take this to the grain of salt, because I, I, I basically have this down, but I don't have the stats in front of me. But around 1900, um, the divorce rate in the United States was something like 3%. And some of you, I know your, your wheels are turning, and you're going to be like, you know, the divorce rate's going to go up. You'll see this. Correlation does not mean causation. That is true, but this is going to just be interesting. So in 1900, the divorce rate's about 3%. Um, when you get to the end of World War II in 1917, there's a big jump, and it gets, I think it's to 17%, something like that, roughly. Um, so that makes sense. All these guys go off to World War I. There's mustard gas. There's trauma. It's awful. There's a lot of problems. They come back, they actually can't stay married. They just don't have, they have real psychological damage from the war. So it jumps by, um, when you get to World War II, um, in the 30s, you get up to about 25% stable. It's climbing, you have the Great Depression in there, but relatively stable. It stays there, um, and in 1959, in 1959, the FDA approves the oral contraceptive. Nineteen fifty-nine, the FDA approves it. And by the way, one a quick thing here is like um, the analogy I usually make on this, some of you have heard this from me on the marriage retreat recently, is that kids, right? Like like all we, we assume the world we're born into. We assume the world we're born into. So my kids today, right, like they can't imagine that people lived before these. Kids in my school, I'm like, my first cell phone, as I always say, I was like a junior in college, and it was one of those like blocks, and it was so cool. I was like, man, I, am, I have a cellular phone, right? Now they're like, they can't, you can't imagine life without a cell phone. But we assume it, and when we assume things, we don't think deeply about it. Okay, the... the Broad spread use of contraceptives did not exist before 1960. Didn't exist. But you were born into that world, and just like me, you assumed them. So, FDA approves by the mid-1960s, but let's say like, like 1967-ish, somewhere in there, the pill reaches market saturation in the United States. So you want, you want the pill, you can get the pill anywhere in the United States. Um, between 1965 and 1975, the divorce rate in the United States doubled. Right, from 25% to 50%. And here's what I want to shock you with tonight and set it up for next class. A 25% jump in the divorce rate in 10 years has never happened in the history of the world. Correlation does not mean causation. You can't isolate it and say contraception caused all of that. But the interesting thing is that when the pill was developed, everyone on planet Earth and everyone since said that contraception is good for marriage. Because when you're married, you want people to, have to be free to have a sexual life 
without fear of pregnancy. And I don't want to diminish that. That's a real thing. Marriages can have a lot of pressures on them. There's financial pressures. There's emotional pressures. There's all kinds of things. And everybody said this is going to help if we have the pill. Divorce rates are going to go down. Because couples can engage in sexual intercourse without the fear of pregnancy. And I actually think that makes sense. Problem is it didn't happen. It doubled. Sexual revolutions happening then, all those kinds of things. The divorce rate is down right now for basically the first time since then. Right now it's down, I don't know what it is, but it's like 48%. Maybe. I would say young, young people, particularly like 20s and 30s, are marriage rates are increasing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what I want to show you next time, we're out of time tonight, but when I, next time, think about this. The Catholic Church's answer as to why this has happened is because God created you with a nature. And I'll just give you this, this sneak answer is that sex and if you understand this, you'll understand every other controversial teaching that the Catholic Church has about sexuality. Sex has two meanings. Union of spouses, which is what everybody wants. And, and part of that is the pleasure of the sexual act. That's a good thing. It's totally fine. That's a good thing. We all want that. But the other meaning is children. And what contraception does, think about this, and I'll, I know we're over time, but not much. Um, ladies, right, when you go on an oral contraceptive pill, what you do is we redefine what sex is, and we say, we like this one, right, check, and we like this one sometimes. And so what we do is we seek to control and redefine when we want this. And so what we do is we put chemicals and hormones into a woman's body so that her body does not work the way it's designed to work, so that we can have sex whenever we want. That's what the pill does. And so what we decided in 1959 was that we didn't need to discover truth. We could reinvent it as we wanted. Next time we're gonna blow that up more, and we're gonna talk more about that. But it, like, we're gonna talk about stats about pornography which is bigger than all of Major League Sports combined. Um, uh, we, have, we have huge divorce rates. We have the breakdown in the family. We have more ills than they could have possibly dreamed of. And again, not all of them can go just straight to the pill. There's other causes. But people don't think about this, yeah. This sort of dating, this, I had a conversation recently with someone talking about the elimination of risk that the pill provides, particularly to women, and now that they have over that and yep. I was debating the intent versus the pill itself right yep. you know could an individual take a, I don't know the chemical name but the pill I can't remember if it helps with acne allegedly I'm not sure but, yep. um, could one take that and then still be celibate say and not yep yeah. so the church's problem when it, when it read I mean I think there's some problems with that thing and I, I'm not a doctor and this is a really controversial statement but I'm just gonna say it anyways some of my doctor's friends say that the pill has become for women this cure-all, this, this panacea. 
where if there are there are a thousand uh, medications for acne, but we just put it all in the pill. So the Catholic Church's stance is not so much that you're trying to take the pill and and then therefore have sex, more sex perhaps, or, but also it's sort of disabling. If it, I can answer your question. I think I know where you're going. Yes. You could, if the pill has a really legitimately good effect that is in accordance with human nature, it's fine. What the problem is here is that the sexual act has been redefined. So, so if the pill, let's say, you know, if the pill came out, it's kind of like marijuana. Marijuana, if it came out tomorrow and said, hey, we took the CBD out and... You're not getting high, but it actually really helps the, the immune system work better. That's in accord with human nature. Totally fine. If we, if we found out that the pill has, and maybe it does, I don't, I'm not a doctor, but if the pill has this thing that it really does for people and it really works, the church has no problem with it. The problem is the redefinition of what the sexual act is. And then following that line, you know, a pill is a very prominent example of contraception. Could there be, thinking of like the... Um, we will talk about that in the next class I promise because that's a very important question is does natural family planning do the same thing we will talk about that the answer is going to be no and we, we there's a it just takes a little bit more time to explain but everyone needs to hear that and I'll show you why it's radically different. So. What was one of these? I have two statements. Two statements. Yeah. Two, you know, number one is, so the next thing is the confession retreat on Saturday, and that's at 8 a.m. So if you were baptized Catholic and you're able to go to confession at our penance service on th this Thursday, anytime from 2 p.m. till 8 p.m., that will free up space for the candidates that need to receive confession at the retreat. So it's up to you, but I just wanted to say that as an option, especially for those of you who are baptized Catholic or your sponsor, if they can maybe go beforehand, it'll free up time. So we're not in a rush from the 8 a.m., 10 a.m. slot on Saturday. And then number two, for the chairs tonight, if you wouldn't mind putting them on the cart thing right there, we're, we're just gonna use that for the Sunday version of the Lord. That's it. Okay, yeah, very good. Are we confessing on Saturday or learning how to confess on Saturday? Both and. So let me, I will put my to-do list tonight. I just need to mentally get rid of So Saturday's actual confession, and we will do both. So we will have time. I will teach you, because you're going to be like, oh my gosh, we can't do this. I don't know how to do this yet. I will walk you through all the hows, and we will send out what's called an examination of conscience. So your job before Saturday, if you're going to confession, is to walk through your life and think about what are the sins I need to confess to God. Bring, I would say to the retreat, definitely bring a like, paper or journal or something because it helps to write it down if this is your first confession. Um, and I will send that out. Yeah. It'll walk you through. It'll ask you questions. It'll say, I'll send it tomorrow. Yeah. I'll, send it, I'll send the examination tomorrow. And, and you guys should email me or call me if you have specific questions. It's very nerve-wracking the first time. And you just seriously text me or call me, and I'll, I'll walk you and through And so before we do it Saturday, we will do a mock confession. Yeah. We'll sit together, and I will be the sinner, and Stephanie can be the priest. Yeah. And I'll just show you how it actually looks and how it feels. Patrick was the example one time. If you remember, it was like a real confession. And the crowd was like, geez, dude. <laughs> 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 out loud. <laughs> anyway. Are we meeting up there for 
We'll start down here and then we'll go up. Thank you everybody for your patience. I know like there's always just so much, so thank you. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. So Holy Spirit. <laughs>